the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown podcast. I'm James Miller, author, journalist, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. And to that end, I was joined on this episode by the MP Anne-Marie Trevelyan. She is MP for Berwick, right up there at the top of England and indeed just to the south of Scotland. I'll come back to that in a bit. I think I would describe Anne-Marie as bold. I mean bold with an O, B-O-L-D. I'm not saying she hasn't got any hair. Um, And she certainly in this podcast says a few bold statements that will very much delight the Brexiteers and possibly dismay the Remainers. Um, So keep listening for some uh, fairly interesting, some might say incendiary remarks. Um, We were also joined by research associate at UK to Changing Europe, Dr Alan Wager. And uh, I tested him on lots of different areas of research that he may or may not have done. Anne-Marie, she was very active during the independence referendum, the Scottish independence referendum in 2014, uh, in trying to keep Scotland in the Union. And now she is very active in trying to get Britain out of the European Union. So we discussed that. Uh, She's also a PPS, that's a sort of ministerial aide at the Ministry of Defence. So we spoke about defence a bit. And uh, we spoke about Brexit more widely. Just before we start, I must mention that it was a very hot day. There's been a lot of hot days recently, which is why we had the window open, which is why you can hear a little bit of traffic noise, but not a lot. But you can hear some bagpipes in the background, which I think just adds to the atmosphere. And we started, we recorded this a couple of weeks ago, just after the so-called Armageddon report had been leaked. This was uh, the civil service a report into the worst case scenario of Brexit, which would involve planes being grounded, supply chains drying up, so there'd be food, there would be no food on the supermarket shelves, etc. So that was the starting point for our conversation, and Alan started off with a question. Here we go. Do you think the civil service should be? leaking reports like it was at the weekend? Uh, Honestly, a civil servant's job is to advise and I'm thrilled that they look at all the potential scenarios as they should do in everything. Every time there's a change of government, there's a cohort of civil servants who disappear into a darkened room and prepare for any potential outcome of, you know, electoral uh, outputs. Therefore, this is the right thing. They should be advised to go to the ministers who then make decisions. So I think, you know, there are some civil servants who I imagine at a personal level are perhaps not thrilled on the Brexit uh, direction of travel, but it's not their job to leak. And, you know, I would hope that anyone who's found out that will be sacked because that is not how it should be done. This is the Armageddon report you're referring to, yes? Yes. The the, the end of the world is coming. No deal. I suppose the argument is, isn't it, that if Armageddon is coming, people ought to know. Do you know, Armageddon can come in a number of ways, and I would hope that the civil service is prepared for any number of Armageddon situations. We have, you know, uh, farming on standby, and, you know, God forbid again, you know, uh, chemical attacks, you know, things ha- bad things happen. The civil service and our public servants have a duty to be prepared for the unexpected. Uh, the, the process of Brexit and leaving the EU, uh, a legal set of treaties, is not an Armageddon situation. Uh, and, you know, the, the suggestion, as this report did, that we were going to run out of food and medicine 
sort of missed the point that that would imply that we were closing our borders, uh, that no one else would be able to provide any of those things. It was all, it was somewhat uh, beyond, and David Davis has been quite clear that A, he doesn't recognise it, B, that is an extremely, extremely unlike situation. You know, God forbid, but there are any number of, you know, other uh, states who may not like this threat, which should worry us all if we're going to sit and worry about Armageddon. What do you know about Armageddon? What do the MOD do about Armageddon? Do you, do you know? Are there, is there like a, a special X-Files department in the MOD where they have like is, meteor <laughs> falling out of the know. sky, Armageddon? There are many layers above and below, below yeah. soil yeah. and all sorts of things. As there are with number 10, there's all sorts of things that go on, which we as citizens of this country put our trust in our civil service and our leaders to be as prepared as possible for the unexpected. Because at the end of the day, the one thing governments always do is, is to defend its people. Is that so, a way of saying that there is an Armageddon fire with it? I genuinely don't you know. know. You don't, uh, I genuinally don't know. Well, we don't really I'll know. ask. Meteor, uh, so meteor on nuclear war. That's really <laughs> it, isn't it, for nuclear Armageddon? Nuclear war we're definitely prepared for because yeah. we are, you know, out there with our with our CASD 24-7. Um, <laughs> no, other than Meteor, there's no other way of Armageddon. I think, and honestly, you know, can we prepare for the unexpected? I suppose we can see it coming, the Meteor. Yeah. But again, you know, preparedness is the key. Hospitals have preparedness plans. Water companies have preparedness plans. Electricity companies have preparedness plans. We would expect people who uh, are in charge of things that affect our lives have a plan for the unexpected. And I'm thrilled that the civil service has been doing that for David Davis. I'd just rather they didn't share it with everybody else. But I suppose from what you're saying about preparedness, the accusation would be that the government was not prepared for a leave vote. Um, and events since have I, I proved think there that, is, that there is a lot of um, indication at the time that um, there were directions given not to assume mm. that uh, that would be the outcome. I wasn't in government, so I, I don't know whether that's true or not. But, you know, certainly when uh, there was a change prime minister and our present prime minister came into post, pretty much the first thing she said to every department was, so let's have a look at your plan. And there was a sort of hiatus in July and she said, I'll see you all on the 1st of September. Crap right. odds. Uh, you know, and so I think, you know, it does seem that there perhaps hadn't been the depth of preparation because there was an assumption that the British people would vote remain rather than leave. Uh, and if that was clear, that's very disappointing because I, I have great faith and admiration for our civil service. I would hope they would have prepared for both. There was only one of two options to pick. You know, mm. it wasn't meteors, it was leave or remain. Yeah, anyway, so wherever it, we so were... it looks like they didn't though, doesn't it? Let's wherever we were, I think the Prime Minister was very robust very quickly in asking everybody to buck up and have a proper look at how the departments will be affected by the change in treaty status, which they have now done. Right, well, let's move on to the future from the past then. Um, I'll ask you both. Um, I suspect I know the answer both ways, but let's see. Um, what's going to happen? <laughs> is there gonna we're going to leave the going to be? Is there going to be a deal and we're going to leave next March? Is it as simple as that? Is there going to be a second referendum? Is there going to be an election somewhere in there? Or is it going to be lovely and straightforward? Goodness, so many questions. So, uh, assuming that things go uh, as I would like them to next week, do we uh, withdraw the return from the House of Lords? Uh, no, 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 let's have things you know? as things are actually going to be. Well, I'm assuming that it will go well. Because yeah, I'm, okay. I'm hopeful that... Uh, you know, our, our side of the chamber will vote yeah, uh, okay. with those from other sides who, who see that the British people's request to leave is mandated. The withdrawal bill is quite a simple piece of legislation. It's it's that we're coming out, we repeal the 72 Act, and then, boom, next year, we're out. That I expect to happen. Um, there may be one or two amendments that, that get through. I personally hope not, because it's a really simple, clear bill. That is the first stage. Once that's done, that means we're definitely leaving. Um, is important. Is boot for the sound of Brexit? <laughs> I like. Uh, that's <laughs> quite a good sound. That's quite a nice sound. <laughs> 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 um, the election, election of... second referendum. You think either of them are likely to happen? 
Uh, I don't know a single MP of any political colour who wants an election to happen. So elections can only happen round here uh, because of the Parliament Act if uh, a very large number of people decide to stand up and be counted. So I think it's extremely unlikely. But this is British politics and, you know, the world is febrile and insane. So one never knows. But I would be genuinely surprised if that was the case. I think we're all, we're all keen to crack on and get through the Brexit yeah, process. I agree, but I know a few who are still predicting it. <laughs> just got a few going well, to bed. You know, like, the, the temperature has risen. It's summer. We're not quite in August, but yet, you know, opportunity um, for discussion of well, yeah, I mean, unsatisfactory outcomes is always around. Um, what's your expert analysis? Well, I guess if we're talking expert. about Armageddon, if, if no deal is, is Armageddon, it'd be quite a slow motion Armageddon. We'd <laughs> sort of see it coming. And I guess I'd ask, do you think that there's a majority of MPs that would accept no deal? Because Hillary Benn, he was at an event we did on Ireland a couple of weeks ago, he said, there's no chance no deal will happen because there's not a majority of MPs in favour of it. And so when we surveyed MPs in January, the majority said, no deal isn't better than a bad deal. Do you think? Do you still think that no deal is better well, than I, a I don't think anybody wants no deal because we want to have a you know, smoother transition into the, the post-Brexit uh, you know, United Kingdom relationship with our European neighbours as possible. So genuinely, I don't think anyone would rather throw the toys out of the pram and wonder if that's just not awesome. But yeah. if the EU continue to try and make the you know, post-Brexit relationship one that isn't actually us having left, then that's not a deal. So, you know, it's not that it's a bad deal, it's just not a deal because we have we have committed to the British people who gave us a very clear direction that we would leave, that's what they've asked us to do, and to do that we have to do certain things. So there is always a no deal possibility, but I would be genuinely surprised if when push comes to shove, uh, Barnier and uh, his negotiators don't go, well actually we don't want our trade to be completely stymied, we don't want to suffer all those, because because we do want to continue to have a good working trading relationship with the United Kingdom, we're an important part of those, and bluntly they would quite like our 40 billion that we've said we're willing to put on the table, because there's a big hole in their budget through to 2022, so you know, deals are made because overall it's better to go in one direction than another, and I, I don't know a single MP who would genuinely rather walk away with no deal, of course not, that's not you know how we want our country to run. Um, is there too much froth? Uh, you've sort of alluded to it in that I, I can see a, a, a scenario somewhere down the line where people look back and go Theresa May was fine you know she mm -hmm. picked a very meandering and careful path through Brexit but that was the only path she could take and at every uh, big European summit we have mm -hmm. something actually happened there's a huge amount of froth from mm -hmm. politicians and the media beforehand mm -hmm. and then and some academics as and well. then, yeah <laughs> absolutely, oh, absolutely and then whatever that little mark that needed to get over at that conference or, or summit happens um is there just too much froth around brexit i think I, well i've said it you know since i came into politics in 2015 it is extraordinary how the 24 7 media machinery needs to be fed and i don't know how else to describe it really uh, so you know as a child you watch the news at six o'clock and probably if you watched it the other two points of the day that you could do so it was the same stories and that was fine and then the next day something else happened now it's a continuum and it, there's a need for change because it's a big competitive marketplace uh, and you know politicians like airtime and we like to share our thoughts and wisdom with the world and all that sort of thing so there is a <laughs> continuous generation of noise but by definition life isn't actually changing at any vast speed you know in the same way that the new york news was when i was little were once or twice a day that would still be fine in terms of actual news with actual change and actual excitement dramas disasters so we could all do with a little bit less of that, but we live with, you know, social media kind of noise which generates a sort of self 
you know, self-perpetuating louder and louder group. Yeah, froth is a is a good word. It's more like treacle a lot of the time. You have to wade through it and try not to get stuck in one bit or another. But yeah, there's a lot of it. It doesn't need to be there. A couple of things I'll pick up on there. One, newsreels. You're not that old. Maybe you were around at the last referendum. I'll back that. You just you put on record that I'm actually only 27. That much older than me. Perfect. Right from there, my political career has far to travel with. And secondly. Uh, you didn't come into politics in 2015 because you were stooping around uh, ahead of the uh, independence referendum, of course, um, building a, a massive uh, cairn with Rory Stewart. <laughs> right? That was your <laughs> project. Am I right? Yeah. We were very keen to, to keep Scotland and England uh, which together. Which I think is still there. Cairn, it's still there. It's lovely. It's beautiful. Um, he did more building than I did. I made sort of food and encouraged people a lot. <laughs> wow, terribly sexist. Yeah, well, he like did all the building. Ah. I bet that's true though. I bet he can cook a scorpion or something like that when he's well, wandering around the desert. Well, I wouldn't want to eat it, would you? No, I bet he's a bit better Trust grilled, me, isn't he? He's delicious. All sorts of funny walks through God knows where. Who knows what he's eaten. Um, but let's knock off a few of your uh, specialities, if you like, and we'll start with the union. Because here's the fundamental question. Uh, you, of course, campaigned, as I say, strongly to keep Scotland mm. in the UK Absolutely. and then campaigned to take the UK out of the EU. Mm-hmm. What's the difference there? One is staying within a union and the other is leaving a union. So can you explain? Well, the for thinking? me, the United Kingdom, which you know came into its present form in 1707, seven. thank you. Um, <laughs> Some unions, you are. A while ago. <laughs> well, yes, I'm not that old. I don't remember that one. <laughs> Um, you know, which was predicated on the back of a financial collapse yes. uh, by the Scots and the need to be financially supported. Uh, we are a physical island. There's a, there's a job, geographical relationship. There's 300 years of uh, interconnectivity. Both, I mean, I, you know, I'm on the border up at Berwick in terms of families yeah. and communities, along with lots of rivalry and the wonderfulness that you know different neighbouring communities mm. go together. Uh, but you know, Scottish residents have fought alongside English. Residents in battles around the globe. You know, we are we are an identity as a united kingdom, uh, which is quite different from the EU project, which is an attempt to uh, break down uh, nationhood and devalue those units of which the United Kingdom is one in favour of a much larger single, you know, empire, for lack of, a, of another word, which is a perfectly worthy project that stemmed from. Uh, you know, a post-war situation mm. which went French and Germans came to, let's never do this again, it was awful, let's find a way so that we are so coherently joined together that we will not want to end up fighting each other. Perfectly honourable way to start a much more, you know, neighbourly relationship than yeah. we had, they'd had for a while. But it's quite, quite a different thing to the United Kingdom, which is a, you know, 300 years of very, very successful you know, neighbourly relations with the old, I mean, as a borderer, you know, the old spat but here the and there. borders is actually a really weird place, isn't it? It's a wonderful because, place. Well, but the borderlands, as they call it, in terms of this project at the moment, sort yeah, of yeah, connect everything up. Stretching but it is a historic thing, the borderlands, isn't it? As you absolutely. say, there's the, the borders, no and sometimes land. they team up, and yeah. there's all sorts of weird feudal stuff that's gone off in the past. Yeah, it's, it's sort of it's no man's land where if you're a little bit bald, you're going to maybe you'll probably nick a few cows yeah. and maybe your daughter. You know, there was quite a lot that went down, but actually, it's a it's a fascinating area because it's it's geographically one of the sort of you know toughest bits of territory of our island, um, and so the people who live there are pretty resilient. Yes, uh, it's been relatively poor agricultural. It still is in very large part agricultural, uh, but from there is a very strong uh, core of, of Britishness. We call it now of the mm. resilience that is the you know the British citizen. Geographically, it probably looks a lot like. 
the Irish border. So I guess could you, do you could have sort of see some of the practical problems as someone that lives on a border like that, some of the practical problems that people are bringing up about the Irish border. So you sort of kind of, you kind of understand where people are coming from with that. Well, it's very interesting. And I mean, the Irish border is, is you know, has, has a different sort of history in that yeah. sense. It's a much bloodier, <laughs> yeah. more recent bloodier history. Mm. Um, but I mean, you know, the English-Scottish borders is, is very fluid. It isn't seen as a border. Mm. Um, you know, during during the Scottish referendum, I had a farmer come to me and say, "Do you think we should set up a, a big uh, discount warehouse for, for booze now, just in case they separated and we could make some money?" Which was a love. That's a very positive sort of you know view of the problem. Rather than we're going to build a wall and, and not let them come down, you know, because they'll be our enemies. It's a. It's. I think that the challenge of the the, the Irish Northern Irish border. Uh, because there's been so much blood spilt there in recent times, um, and they've got overcome that and found a way to really try and, you know, break it down into a much more practical economic, you know, trading post rather than anything else. Um, mm. they, they, it's too close, and it's there's fear of going backwards. I understand where that anxiety comes from, but I don't think there's a need for it to be an anxiety. You know, there are cameras now on some of the roads monitoring, you know, traffic and other things. This concept that it has to all be absolutely pristine and clear is it's sort of it's a sort of utopian view of reality which doesn't go with just day-to-day living you know there'll still be a tax man chasing red diesel for the blokes who want to try and you know put the wrong diesel in their cars and save a bit of money you know there'll still be somebody selling dodgy fags from one side to the other because you know these things have always happened there will still be police enforcement of you know those who are trying to break the rules the border isn't you know it's just the place where you might catch them at it um as so i think i think we there, and perhaps there's been, you know, political reasons from Ireland's uh, leaders to, to make use of it because they're staying in the EU and, you know, the Northern Ireland part of the island isn't. Uh, but I think there's there's been a lot of noise, perhaps too much froth, uh, when actually the realities aren't and don't need to be in any way complex or, you know, anxious making for anybody. Are you concerned that Brexit could damage the union? There has to be potential that it could there's always potential for any damage with the, the aim of, of a change in how we do our relationship with our European nations next door uh, is one that we want to get right so that we get into a point where the trading relationship, our, our security relationship, all those things are positive. They're just in a new framework and they're not tying us into sets of laws uh, directed from Brussels, which the British people don't want anymore. Of course, the Scots do want that, according to, you know, Some the Scots referendum result and, and all Absolutely. the rest of it. Yes, not all well, they'll still but have UK laws to follow, so that will keep them busy. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, so you know, no concerns or few concerns that Brexit will lead to a second independence referendum, for example. Very little. I mean, I you know talk to people on both sides of the border every weekend when I get home, and those people just want to get on with their lives and running their business and making sure their kids have got a decent school, which sadly in Scotland is a much less you know certainty than it was 15 years ago, um, and. Most people, even those who voted Remain, are in the can we just get on with it and crack on because actually it's not that good. And I look at the EU, oh, now I'm looking a bit more close than I was before. It's all a bit awful over there, and they're very bossy. And the poor Italians, there's a lot of that at the moment. Honestly, why are they being told? But interestingly, a lot of people have never looked up and looked at the EU much. And the the dilemma during the referendum of you know those that very large cohort who I'm not sure which side I sit somewhere could be Remain, could be leave. I'm, I'm really sort of in the middle who picked Remain sort of as a, probably the safer option because it's the status quo, yeah. 
are looking up and going, oh, it's not the status quo, is it? Because this thing is moving on. And actually, I think just getting off isn't such a bad idea after all. It's very interesting. There's been a big shift in the last year, probably. Uh, in the last few weeks, perhaps. Well, Have yeah. you been researching Italy? Because it does seem to be, uh, you know, when I was a kid, uh, everybody used to be jokes about it- Italy, and, you know, <laughs> who's the Italian yeah. Prime Minister this week and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. And now we've got what appears to be a similar sort of situation to what you used to have. And yet, uh, as Amory says, people are looking at it and going, oh, hang on, the EU does look a bit dodgy. I mean, if there was a second referendum, why would anybody vote to get back into bed with that basket case? Are you I'm not sure that, that, many, that many British voters look at European politics and, and, and analyse it enough to, to form, form an opinion on their politics based on what's happening in Italy or wherever, probably. Do, uh, they, do they clock it, though? Does, you, know, uh, you, you do research into voters' attitudes and all the rest of it. Yeah. Is Italy just not on their radar at all? Or do people sort of pick up, oh, something funny is going down in Italy and that's as far as it goes? Or does it not even get that far? I wouldn't say yet, but I'm sure there's a possibility, depending on what happens well, uh, yes. in the next sort of six months, that, that, that the Italy issue could kick up and, uh, and, and, and move a few votes. But I, I, would, I, would, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't expect it to. No. no. But I, it, not in a substantial way. You wouldn't expect it to shift the dial in terms of the leave remain polling no but i think in terms of because i would within, but that's because i'm you know <laughs> sitting in westminster thinking about politics within, yeah and, and at westminster within for yeah. example the labor party uh the way that italy might be treated in the in in, in yeah. the future in with regards to how they you know their, their economic policy and whether or not the europe will be flexible enough to accommodate it will potentially impact on all these people in the labor party that say hang on will we, will we be able to do this this big program yeah. of reform yeah. while in the single market. So actually, the Labour leadership, for the Labour leadership's position, which is sort of anti the single market, yeah, really, yes. pretty much. Well, we don't really know. No. It's, <laughs> it's not that clear, I would say. Yeah. No, you're right. Uh, yeah, but I think, I, think, I think it gives sucker to those in the Labour Party that say, hang on a minute, would we actually be able to do what we want to do yeah. within the European Union? I think okay. that's up for debate. Um, uh, academics aren't actually sure. But yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Do you, like, do you like coming on this podcast and I just expect you to have researched everything? <laughs> you're a research associate and I go, oh, have you researched this? Have you researched this Italy? or that or whatever? Everything. <laughs> not, um, not perfect academics, that really does. <laughs> um, let's move on. Defence. Um, your Twitter feed's full of pictures of boats and stuff. It is, absolutely. Well, ships, not boats. Yeah. Oh, well, well, you there aren't many pictures of boats because they're underwater. Um, um, oh, yes, so, exactly. so you can oh. see the top of the odd boat occasionally, but yeah. Uh, so as the uh, PPS and the defence ministers, I'm really very involved day to day with supporting colleagues and all the various defence issues that go on around is, the patch, which is fascinating. Is Brexit a defence issue in the sense that you know we've got NATO and Five Eyes that perhaps uh, Five Eyes is the, the security uh, sharing between uh, Britain, America, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. I'm never sure how much New Zealand really ought to contribute to that, but they get they, they get, get thrown in. If it. they heard you say that. Well, I'm sure they would. Oh, you know, they might we might have a couple of New Zealand listeners. Might do. Yeah, bring yeah. it. If you, if you, I don't want to slag off. Well, no, I will slag off New Zealand. There's hardly any of them. And they're the furthest away people there are. I can slag them off with impunity. Well, I live with a couple. So. Maybe, <laughs> maybe their security services are the best in the world. I don't know. Um, but yeah, because there's five eyes, there's NATO. Yeah. Um, does Brexit really impact with defence that much? I think, you know, in terms of security and, you know, European security, which, if we go back to what I was saying before, and if the purpose of, of the EU vision was to ensure, you know, peace and security in in Europe, the land mass that is Europe, obviously we remain in Europe, and without a doubt, you know, we are, after America, the largest contributor into NATO, mm. uh, and in terms of our leadership, our 
uh, you know, our military personnel and the leadership they give to all the NATO activity, we're absolutely critical to that. That has always been, since World War II, the foundation and the strength of European, in geographical terms, and North Atlantic security. Uh, and that won't change. So the EU machinery is, is economic, it's political, but it's you know, that isn't, that isn't the, the, the protection is through NATO. And there's no crossover there. And obviously most NATO countries, I think, professionally, most NATO countries are in the EU. Mm -hmm. um, so they're not going to then go, oh, you've left the EU, I don't want to go on a march with you. I think, it's, I think it's very unlikely because those relationships at a military level, you know, happen yeah. in a completely different space. And, and are considered, certainly, you know, when I talk to people all the time in, in, in my role, uh, it's an incredibly robust relationship, which is you know, far above and, and more profoundly intertwined than any political relationship. Done any research into that? <laughs> well, I'm not saying Amory's not been extremely, extremely busy, but the, the, in terms of the Brexit debate, it's all been about economics, and actually it's surprising how little security and defence mm. has, has been part of, of the debate thus far. I think that might have been because Theresa May at the outset said, we're not going to be, we're not going to have that as part of the bargaining, we're not going to use security and defence as a bargaining chip. The relationship exists with NATO and that commitment is, you know, is unwavering. But there are other elements that are inter interrelated to the EU, things like Interpol, and whether or not it could have been a key sort of bargaining chip for Britain, I don't know, 25% I think or something like that of, of uh, defence procurement is British within the EU is Britain. So it's, a, it's a massive spender okay. of defence on defence. So whether or not it was a tactical, strategic mistake not to bundle it up within the negotiations, I, I don't know. Well, but I think it's very clear, it's not, security's not something you mess about with. You know, we're committed to, you know, looking after and protecting our neighbours as we would, you know, under Article 5, we would hope they would too if something awful happened to us, and therefore the EU discussion is at a different level. It's an edit, someone said something boring or illegal, maybe told some slanderous story about Boris Johnson, you'll never know. The end of March will be a hold your breath moment whilst everyone decides, you know, where they, <laughs> yes. where they decide to stamp their mark and that's fine, that's how negotiations work. The reality is that trading will continue, great products will be bought and sold across our borders because they're great products from wherever they're coming from and whoever it is who wants to buy them. Well, the great rule of politics is show not tell and actually if, if people see on day on day one that it's all maybe a bit more difficult than they expected that might be when the big shift or change because currently there's been very little change in public mm, opinion well, we haven't left yet so yeah, yeah. but it might, it might be actually on day one when if there are queues at Dover that might be a bit of a concern for people that are pro-Brexit because there might just be a sudden shift or change in, in, in public opinion if they see if people see uh, some of the problems that potentially might happen I don't, know, I don't know if you look at but we regularly have queues at Dover because the French have gone on strike about something or you know, this is not an EU, non-EU situation, this is ports or particular groups of people throwing their toys out the pram, frustrating the process of trade momentarily until the problem is solved. It's happened before, it could happen again at this particular Brexit point, it could happen afterwards. I think we, we again we're making mountains out of molehills where the point in the bigger picture will be to ensure that we've got trading programmes that work and if there's a hiatus, you know, if, if Dover doesn't work, well, there are a number of other ports that we could use, both off UK soil and onto European and so on. And I think we, we can make it all seem like doing the more. We can actually crack on with doing what trade does, which is selling goods. Isn't it equally or perhaps more likely that actually people won't notice anything? And yeah. that also has a shift, shift the dial in that remain just sort of fades actually, away as people go, well, nothing's really changed. Even if there's a big queue at Dover, yeah. It doesn't really matter if you're 
whatever tonight whatever gets to Tesco yeah. 24 hours later yeah, then, and you know you won't notice any difference if you were quite and if you were quite unless you live in Machiavelli about it these sort of Armageddon leaks that Emirates has potentially come from the civil service actually maybe it makes sense for the government to or to politically leak these things saying it's all going to be doom and gloom because actually it won't be anywhere near that bad probably Whoa. so actually if you, if you try and, if you try and get if you try and expectation management when actually on day one maybe there's some teething problems as you say yeah, so that's not the prime minister's way of doing business yeah but we can still buy still buy tins of beans on the shelves you know then maybe people think oh actually it's not as bad as as, as, well, as we were told right smooth uh you mentioned a good thing let's yes. go on to the features Best thing! Oh. Worst thing. Starting uh, with what will be the best thing about Brexit? Uh, that Brussels won't tell us how to do things and we will be responsible for making our own decisions again. For better or worse, we will be responsible for ourselves. I'm a mum, I believe in taking responsibility, I'm a Tory, that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like you say, for better or worse, there's all sorts of issues yeah, around that, isn't me, there? When you're responsible, it's in, and I think it suits the British spirit to be, you know, back in charge of ourselves, leading from the front in the way that the British do best. Uh, and the worst thing, you're a Brexiteer, but there's going to be downsides. The worst thing was if we don't leave. No, because that's oh, you're we are going to leave. You, you're giving me. De- oh, we come are on, we're going to leave. Just checking, because you know, well, you know. Well, 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 I've got. A, all right, I don't know. I'm saying <laughs> there might be an election or a referendum, but I, I personally the worst think we will thing leave. As a result of Brexit. Well, I mean, the worst thing is if we if we don't have a deal that gets us properly out, and we're stuck in a sort of half life of, of one foot but in, one foot out. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. That's not going to be the worst thing. And therefore, there is no terrible thing because we will be in charge of our destiny again. Okay. I'm a relentless optimist. All right, that's a bit of a. Okay. It must be. What about, oh, I don't know. Will my cheese become more expensive? Yes. Uh, that'd be well, terrible. That would be sad. Well, I'd just get British cheese rather than French. That'd oh, be come on. You can't just swap British cheese for French. I'm not saying British well, cheese isn't good. Fair. In, in the, the unlikely event. event. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. What do you recommend? Uh, I want to understand Brexit. All these listeners want to understand Brexit. Um, where do they go? To? So this is a really interesting question, and there's lots of books, and you know, one could be earnest. But actually, the thing that that I, um, the tool I used, it was accidental. I came across it was a film called No, uh, which was made in 2012. And it was the story of the uh, referendum in Chile to ask whether Pinochet should uh, stay in power, whether they should go to a democratic system of elections. Uh, And the no campaign, which was no thank you, no more Pinochet, we want elections, uh, is the most, it was a beautifully made film, most extraordinary story of the underdog, uh, under pressure from a relatively tough state, let's put it that way, Winning nonetheless, winning even though you were saying no, because the whole thing about uh, Brexit yes. has been this negativity. We should stay is the warm and fluffy, mm. leaving is the scary, bad, dark sort of thing. And this film captures the essence of what I consider to be the British people's spirit of willingness to step into something new. We've always done it. It's it's a, it's part of our, our DNA. I think uh, something about the soil, the water, the weather. I don't know what it is. 
Um, and this film captures that essence of the underdog saying, no thank you, we don't want the same. We want to step into a new world. It's the most extraordinary film, and it's not about Brexit, it's about yeah. Pinochet and regime, but the, the, but it it's all is. about the people and a, a willingness and then a determination when they kept being told that they were wrong and stupid and they didn't know what was good for them to say no thank you we want to try it in a different way and they won brilliant i think i think that's the first film we've had to recommend i think we've got to episode <laughs> yeah. 19 or 20 or something we've done, i've been waiting for a film to come along um, that's a really good recommendation which makes your job a bit harder Alan. what have you got for me uh, this week? mine's about mine's another referendum and it's one we talked about earlier the 1975 referendum oh, and there's a yeah. book by my colleague at queen mary robert saunders and i went to the launch the other day of his book on the 1975 referendum it's an absolutely fascinating book and there's loads of different things about it so the one place in the UK, the one county area that voted to leave was Orkney and the Shetland, the only place in, really? in the whole UK. Wow. England was by far the most pro-Remain place. Yeah. Northern Ireland was by far the most mm-hmm. leavey. But in, in loads of different ways, it's also really similar. And, and you can really, the, power, the striking parallels between 1975 and 2016 and why it went wrong for Cameron, but right for Harold Wilson. I'd mm-hmm. recommend this book. What's it called? It's called Yes, Europe. Yes and it's to Europe. Pa- yeah, so, so it's 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 That's an analysis. No to Pinochet, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yes, to, yes to Europe, no to Pinochet. Perfect. <laughs> uh, perfect balance. That's how we like to end. There you have it. The official sound of Brexit is boomph. That's the sound that apparently Brexit will make when it happens next year. If it happens next year, but I think it probably will. Anne-Marie Trellian was very interesting, wasn't she? She is a Tory Brexiteer. She thinks Brexit is a bit like treacle. She thinks that the Irish leaders are flamming up Brexit for political reasons. She thinks civil servants who leak stuff should be sacked. And if Rory Stewart MP offered her a cooked scorpion, she would say no. Which I think at least everybody can probably agree on that. I hope you enjoyed that. I thought she was uh, very interesting. And we've got some more interesting Brexiteers lined up for the weeks to come. We've got a comedian, we've got a senior UKIP person, and we've got a wonk and possibly a journalist. So lots of interesting Brexit angles to come in the forthcoming episodes. If you want to get in touch about this episode or any other episode, then you can get me at UK in a Changing Europe podcasts at gmail.com or probably easier to find me on Twitter where I am at Political Yeti and my website is james-miller.com and you can find all the recommendations listed on the blog there. If you want to get in touch with the UK in a Changing Europe, they are at UK and EU on Twitter or their website is UKandEU.ac. UK. Now, just one thing, actually, while I think about it, it's just popped into my head from a previous episode. When we had Chris Wright on, the uh, Chrysalis founder, the music executive, we discussed which musicians might be Brexit and might be Remain, and Taylor Swift's name came up. Now, I am that cool that I went to see Taylor Swift at the weekend, not like to meet her, but to watch her perform at Wembley Stadium. And she was, she made a little comment about how people came from all over the world in London and how it was great it was really cosmopolitan and basically I thought she sounded a bit Remainery. I remember in that podcast which I think was episode 5 or 6 we suggested she might be a bit Brexity with her background in country music. I would say she is probably 
remain having seen her perform. I would also say to you, go and see her if you get the chance because she's really good. And also, everybody should listen to Charlie XEX. I may be a middle-aged man, but I am was terribly impressed by the pop nonsense of Charlie XCX, who I had never heard of until the weekend. Um, we will, uh, before this series finishes, try and find out if she is Brexit or Remain. Talking of music, the music in this episode has again been Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra. I have still been James Miller, and this has been the Brexit Breakdown Podcast, brought to you by the UK in a Changing Europe, supported by King's College London, and funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Come back in a couple of weeks for another episode. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.